Well, this morning, as I mentioned last week, we are taking a break from our normal study through the book of Acts, and this morning we find ourselves in the book of Proverbs, Old Testament, right after the book of Psalms, and we are in Proverbs chapter 1, looking at verse 7. Uh, If you want to think of this sermon in a way that is helpful, uh, think of it as an introduction to the the uh, doctrine of the fear of the Lord, just an introductory sermon to the fear of the Lord. There's so much to say. Proverbs 1.7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. A few weeks ago and prior to the final ruling handed down by the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, someone sent me an article in which the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, was recorded as making the following statement regarding abortion. She said, quote, For those of us of faith, I think we agree, there is nothing about this issue of abortion that will require anyone to abandon their faith, end quote. That was an astonishing statement, and I say astonishing due to the importance of that statement. Her statement reveals the heart of the issue facing Christians today, and it is this, the dichotomization of faith and life. In case you don't know, the word dichotomization means the act of dividing something into two sharply different categories. To dichotomize is to drive a wedge through something in order to create a separation that was not there before. And if you were paying attention to what the vice president said, her words revealed a dichotomized view of faith on the one hand and life on the other hand, as if the two can indeed be kept separate. As a Christian, however, I want to argue as forcefully as I can that, and from the authority of Scripture that what she said in the abstract of her words cannot be done in the reality of life. You cannot separate your faith from your life. Why? Because at the end of the day, at the core, we are religious beings, meaning we will always live our lives in submission to that which we worship and adore. And the deepest religious convictions of the heart will dictate what we do and how we think. My friends, we must understand this one essential truth. The culture of death manifested in millions and millions of abortions since Roe v. Wade in 1973 is a manifestation of religion, not of politics. Not of politics. I will remind you of what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs or issues of Life, we could paraphrase it like this As the heart is, so will be your what? Your life. Your life. 
The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth what? Evil. In this context, the word treasure is the word heart, is the concept of the heart. What comes out is already within. Or how about this one? Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Here's the Lord Jesus again. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do you see any of these vices manifesting in society or even in your own life? Now you know the origins. Now you know the origins. It's not politics. It's the human heart. I heard Ernie Baker give a helpful illustration of the tea bag, and I want to borrow it uh, without his permission <laughs> and expand a little bit on it. The tea bag, once it is immersed in water, begins to release what's inside of it. Eventually, and given enough time, the water begins to reflect the internal contents of the tea bag. The darker the inside of the tea bag and the longer, longer it sits, sits there, the darker the water will be. If you are asking yourself, why is our culture looking so dark to the point that it celebrates and promotes evils such as abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, etc., along with the destruction of what is good, such as personal responsibility, the family, gender distinctions, respect for authority, etc., here's the answer. The human heart is the teabag. Culture is the water. In other words, our culture is simply reflecting what's in the heart of man. And the heart is, is thoroughly, thoroughly religious. It will always worship something. It will always worship, even if you're an atheist this morning, you consider yourself an atheist, you worship something. Culture, then, is the externalization of the religious convictions of a society. That's culture. Is religion externalized? Religion externalized. The culture of death manifested through abortion did not come from outside. It came from within. These issues are not political. They are religion and they reflect human depravity. So I respectfully but forcefully disagree with the vice president. What she said cannot be done. Eventually, the religious commitments of your heart will determine and shape your entire life. But let me prove this further. Consider the Christian faith, the Christian life. Listen to how Paul spoke of Christ in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to these words. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you hear that? Did you hear those words? Are you awake? <laughs> Notice what Paul did not say. 
He did not say when Christ, who is a part of your life, appears, or Christ, who makes up some portion of your life, appears. No, brothers and sisters, Paul made a worldview-shaping statement. Christ is your life. If you are a Christian, don't think for a moment that your faith in Christ can be separated from your life, including your decisions, the way you vote, the causes you support, your life in, at the home, your integrity at work, or your life as a husband, wife, son, or daughter. For the Christian, Christ is never just one of the many compartments of his life or one of the many books on the shelf. Christ is your life. Thus, what the vice president said cannot be for faith and life always go hand in hand. If there is one book that makes this abundantly clear is precisely the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was written by David's son, Solomon, and the addressee was mainly a young man, as we read in chapter 1, verse 8. Now, the purpose of the book is stated in chapter 1, verse 3, and it is to offer what? Wisdom and instruction. In what? In wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Justice, righteousness, and equity. In other words, Proverbs has a lot to say to the world. Isn't that what we want for our world, for our society? Proverbs has a lot to say to the world. Proverbs speaks of every issue you could think of. Integrity, sexual purity, the dangers of adultery, friendship, honesty, work ethic, political and social righteousness, the perils of corruption in relationships, the importance of godly authority, transparency in business, etc., Etc. In other words, if we were to follow the instructions of the book of Proverbs, our society by and large would look completely different. It would be a different world. But as we know, everything has a starting point, a foundational platform, a central presupposition, or what we could call a first principle. A first principle. Someone once said, and I quote, the man who thinks without the proper first principles goes mad. The man who thinks without the proper first principles goes mad, end quote. Now, before we talk about the chief of first principles, consider how easily we could expand on that quote. The married couple that thinks without proper first principles goes mad. The family that thinks without proper first principles goes mad. The society that thinks without proper first principles will go Mad. Nothing matters more than first principles. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 presents that first principle. A principle without which there is only folly. Here's the very starting point of it all. Listen as I read it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the first principle. The fear of the Lord is the first principle principle. Forget the fear and you get folly. Reject this first principle and you get madness. If I am correct in saying that the main danger or challenge facing Christians today is the dichotomization of faith and life, 
thinking they can exercise their faith in the Lord Jesus on Sundays and leave the rest of the week and everything else to themselves, then the fear of the Lord is the main weapon against this threat. So what is the fear of the Lord? As I said, this is an introductory sermon to the fear of the Lord. We could devote months to this concept, but I will limit myself to a more general definition this morning. The fear of the Lord, broadly speaking, and at a basic level, is to live life acknowledging God as God. Is that revolutionary or what? Huh? is to live life acknowledging God as God. The fear of the Lord is the acknowledgement that he is other, transcendent, distinct from us, and that this world belongs to him. This is his world. I hate to break it to you. You don't own this world. I don't own this world. It is God's world. The fear of the Lord then begins by a firm understanding of the creator-creature distinction. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul explains the nature and the roots of unrighteousness. And after describing a series of horrific sins, in verse 28, he says this, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. In other words, this widespread unrighteousness described by Paul in Romans chapter 1 stems from not fearing God because fearing God begins by acknowledging him as God, creator, sustainer, provider, owner, etc. To use the words of a contemporary theologian and apologist, the fear of the Lord can be thought of as vertical accountability. Vertical accountability. Both Joseph and David show us the fear of the Lord as vertical accountability in that when temptation came in the case of Joseph and when sin was committed in the case of David, both Joseph and David acknowledged God as the one who always sees and the one to whom they were ultimately accountable for all their actions. Both Joseph and David lived in the awareness of the transcendent, They walked horizontally in relationships, wars, sadness, victories, and triumphs, but they always knew themselves to be vertically accountable, meaning accountable to God. They feared the Lord. This is the reason why the fear of the Lord is the first principle. It is a life-shaping, worldview-forming reality and truth. God is God, and he must be acknowledged as such. Ecclesiastes tells us the bottom line. In the second to last verse of the entire book, the author says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why does Ecclesiastes say that? Why is the fear of God the whole duty of man? Because, as Ecclesiastes says in the very last verse, listen to this, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The fear of God determines everything else in our lives. 
Or as Reformed theologian and professor John Murray said many, many years ago, quote, the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. Now, let's consider the fear of the Lord and its massive implications. So here's the second point. The fear of the Lord and wisdom. The fear of the Lord and wisdom. Now, we are going somewhere with this. I hope you understand that we are going somewhere very important with this. How is the fear of the Lord at the beginning of knowledge? What does that mean? What is it that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? It means that the acknowledgement of God as supreme over all areas of life includes and begins with the area of our thinking, our mind. In other words, true knowledge or proper thinking has its roots in granting God epistemological supremacy. And that's a big word meaning supremacy over the realm of knowledge. To fear God is to learn to think, here's the definition, to fear God is to learn to think under authority as opposed to autonomously. It's to learn to think under authority as opposed to autonomously. If you don't acknowledge God as supreme over your thoughts, your knowledge will eventually become warped and corrupt. To illustrate this, consider with me the word wisdom. What is the word wisdom? What does it mean? Well, based on the overall teaching of the book of Proverbs, we could define wisdom in this way. Wisdom is the skillful application of the fear of God to every area of life. That's wisdom. The skillful application of the fear of God to every area of life, or to put it even more simply, wisdom is to live under the ever-present awareness that reality, listen to this, this is why this matters. To fear the Lord, or wisdom, I'm sorry, wisdom is to live under the ever-present awareness that reality is what God has made it to be. Because he is God. To walk, the walk of wisdom begins with a submission of my thinking to the supremacy of God over all of life. I fear him. I acknowledge him. Therefore, I think properly, which leads to proper living. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read that the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord. You see, it's not just an Old Testament concept. The New Testament believers were walking in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means they were walking wisely. They were walking wisely. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to walk in the awareness that God is the ultimate point of reference for everything I do. Even when you are by yourself, even when you are alone, everything you do, the ultimate point of reference is God, is God. And that awareness, that acknowledgement is the beginning, the starting point of a wise life. We could say that this is an aspect of walking cordum deo or in the sight of God. Several months ago, while I was preaching through Acts chapter 4, verse 19, I made the point that the apostles' central conviction was that they lived always cordum deo or in the sight of God. And this had massive ethical 
ethical implications. Their ethic was determined by that first principle. And so they said to the Jewish authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. So for the apostles, rightness and wrongness, meaning ethics, was determined by the fear of God. Now, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. This is on page 61 of the Blue Bibles, if that's what you're using. Exodus chapter 20. And consider the case of the Israelites as an illustration of how the fear of the Lord is the heart of ethical behavior. After God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and after seeing the dark cloud and the lightning and the sound of thunder, the Israelites were afraid. They were afraid of God, so much so that they didn't want God to speak to them. They thought they were going to die. But notice what Moses told them in verse 20, Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you. Why? That you may not, what? Sin. That you may not sin. That the fear of God may be within you so that you may not fear. It is an ethical thing. Professor John Murray was right. The fear of the Lord is the heart of godliness. The truth is, Humans cannot live properly without a first principle. And they will always find one to live by. Now, to illustrate this and why this is relevant for us today, let me bring to your attention an insight from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which will help us transition into my next point. How many of you have read that book, by the way? Let me see your hands. Okay, to the five of you. Well done. Well done. I don't agree with everything he says, but he has some good insights in that book. There are two ways to view the world. There are two competing worldviews. One is captured by the word mimesis. Mimesis. If you haven't heard of that word, don't worry about it. Let me explain it. This word refers to the view in which the world and everything in it, including my life, social life, family life, etc., has meaning purpose, and structure already in place. Our job as humans is to discover that meaning, that purpose, and to live within that given structure and submit to it. Submit to it. As an example for, uh, here would be the Christian conviction of the image of God in men. Is that one important? That's a big one. The conviction of the image of God in men. Essential to the meaning, purpose, and structure of human existence is the truth that we were made to reflect what? To reflect God. To reflect God. Both your meaning, your purpose are bound to that reality which you did not create. You did not create it. It was given to you. We're born into a world that already has meaning, purpose, and structure. And what's the central of it all? We were made to reflect the image of God. As Christians, we believe the world was given its meaning, purpose, and structure, not by us, but by God. The other worldview is captured in the word poiesis. This word indicates that the world does not have an intrinsic meaning, 
purpose and structure. Therefore, it is our job as humans to make up our own meaning, purpose, and structure. This being the case, a man is not created in the image of God to reflect and honor him. Rather, humans exist to make up their own destiny, their own laws, and their own meaning and purpose, and to create their own structures. In other words, poiesis means a worldview void of what? The fear of the Lord. Poiesis is a worldview that does not see fit to acknowledge God. The implications are enormous. So let me ask you, let's participate a little bit here. What type of worldview dominates our day? The mimetic view in which the world has intrinsic purpose, meaning, and structure? Or poiesis in which we are in charge of giving the world its meaning, its purpose, and its structure? I think you know. If you have been watching the news, I think you know. If you're in social media, I think you know. Poiesis is ruling the day. We make up our own meaning, purpose, and structure. We live however we want. So this takes me right into my next point, the fear of the Lord and the demise of society. The fear of the Lord and the demise of society. The bottom line of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and really of every biblical reference to the fear of the Lord is this. Please listen to this carefully before you fall asleep. Listen to this one, and then you can fall asleep. No, not really. I'm taking pictures. I have cameras everywhere. Here's the bottom line. The fear of the Lord is the first principle because it is the necessary precondition for human flourishing. The fear of the Lord is the first principle because it is the necessary precondition for human flourishing. The only way to live life in this world, God's world, without destroying ourselves is by acknowledging the supremacy of God beginning with our thinking. We must think in submission to God and His law revealed in His word. But Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 makes it clear that when an individual, a married couple, families, churches, or even societies don't do that, they begin to collapse. Look at the second line of our verse. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It is important to note here the use of parallelism. Parallelism in the book of Proverbs. What is parallelism? It is a literary, literary tool used in poetic writings where the two lines, the first half and the second half, are to be read as, you know the word, parallels. There you go. Good job. What we see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 is known as antithetic parallelism, where the two lines, the two halves, are conveying the same idea, but by way of contrast. In other words, Proverbs 1, 7 is saying this, since the fear of the Lord is the necessary precondition for wisdom and knowledge, meaning for proper living, then the fool is the one who in rebellion does not fear God, does not acknowledge him as God, as giver, sustainer, provider, 
and owner of all things. It is the worldview of poiesis, in which God is not the ultimate, he is not supreme, rather we are. We are supreme. We are. Fools despise the first principle, and this is a critical point. So let's think about this a little longer. Foolishness begins by lessening the awareness of God within us. Foolishness begins by lessening the awareness of God within us. How do I know? Because the fool says in his heart what? There is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. That's where foolishness begins. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because a denial of him as supreme is the essence of foolishness. Here's why. Don't miss this point. Don't miss it. Important. The rejection or suppression of the fear of the Lord does not mean people abandon the need for God. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again. The suppression or rejection of the fear of the Lord does not mean people abandon the need for God. As someone said very insightfully, quote, if man pretends God is dead... His need for the doctrine of God does not disappear. It is transferred from the transcendent to the immanent realm. End quote. In other words, if you will not submit to God as supreme over all things, then you will replace him with something else, an idol that cannot save you. But you will always have an ultimate point of reference. You have an ultimate point of reference. The, the question is, is it God? Or is it something else? If it's not God, it will be an idol, a false God. And if the fear of the Lord means to walk acknowledging our vertical accountability to God above all else, then foolishness begins when we enter the realm of horizontal relativity. Horizontal relativity means this. Listen to this. Since God is out of the equation... Since he is not the first principle, then we are free to live in the realm of the social contract in which meaning, purpose, and structure is what we say they are. How does this thinking infiltrate our minds? Well, through anything that seeks to lessen our awareness of God's supremacy. So let me give you a few examples. If you think... Removing prayer and Bible reading from public schools has no sinister purpose behind it, then think again. That's war against the fear of the Lord. If you think materialistic philosophies such as Marxism has no sinister, diabolical agenda, then think again. It is war against the fear of the Lord. If you think evolutionary science that removes God as the first cause of all creation has no sinister agenda, then think again. It is also war against the fear of the Lord. It is about the first principle. It is about the first principle. And this is a war for the mind. It is a war for the mind. How can you convince an entire generation, an entire generation that babies in the womb are nothing more than clumps of cells with little to no value. Well, you do that by removing the fear of the Lord from their thinking, which is the very essence of foolishness, according to the Bible. One contemporary theologian and apologist explained this very well, and I quote, 
Listen to this quote, very insightful. In his rejection of vertical accountability for horizontal relativity, modern man is conferring on himself the contractual right to redefine his gender irrespective of creational chromosomes, the right to murder, including abortion, the right to polygamy, bestiality, or any sexual predilection, the right to suicide, the right to homosexual quote-unquote marriage, the right to prostitution and pornography, the right to blasphemy, all dressed in the garb of freedom and human dignity, which amounts to nothing but radical autonomy, end quote. Only, listen to this, only in a society that has abandoned the first principle of the fear of God can you become the final arbiter of what is good and evil and the supreme definer of meaning, purpose, and structure. And by the way, the absence of the fear of the Lord can be seen starting from the popular issues of abortion and homosexuality all the way down to issues no one seems to care about anymore, such as the amount of people who use the name of God in vain, including the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. They use it as a cuss word. It's a cuss word. In the well-known passage of Romans chapter 11 and following, the Apostle Paul begins with these words, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Then he goes on to describe sinful humanity in very dark and hopeless terms. No one does good, their tongues are deceptive, they, they, their lips are venomous, their mouth full of bitterness, they are quick to shed blood, they destroy and bring misery upon themselves. And they, the conclusion of it all, he concludes the entire thing in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is his conclusion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So why is it that for decades now, at least officially since Roe v. Wade ruling in 1973, the blood of millions of innocent babies have been shed? Why? An abandonment of the first principle. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So let me ask you this question. Where is the Lord Jesus in all of this? Where's the Lord Jesus in all of this discussion of the fear of the Lord? Well, he's at the very center of it, all, of it all, which is our next point, the fear of the Lord and the gospel. I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. This is in page 927. Acts chapter 17, and I want us to read verses 30 and 31. And as we read this passage, I want you to consider with me the absolute finality and authority granted to our Lord, to the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 17, page 927 in the Blue Bibles. Incredibly important passage. Listen to the reading of God's word. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, listen to this, by a man 
whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you had any question as to who that man is, by whom God will judge the world, then this removes the doubt, the one who rose from the dead. When we preach the gospel, my brothers and sisters, we are preaching the lordship of Jesus and his authority to save, to forgive sins, to grant eternal life and rule over all things because of his death and his resurrection. So here's what you need to know. You can fear God either positively, honoring his son Jesus through faith and obedience, or you can fear God negatively by rejecting his son and knowing that his wrath is upon you. But either way, all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus. Thus, all people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe in him. So here we bring everything to our final point, the fear of the Lord and our message to the world. Do we Christians have anything to say to the world? Well, yeah, we have a big book. We have a big book, and we serve a Lord who has all authority. So here's, here's the first thing that I want to, the first group of people that I want to address, those who don't fear the Lord, those who don't fear the Lord. I must warn you out of love, and I have already alluded to this, to reject the salvation that Jesus offers through his blood and his resurrection is to reject God himself. John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You must come to Christ, confess him as Lord. That is the first group. The second group is to our political leaders. And I hope you understand this, there's nothing controversial here. There's, there's no desire to be controversial. But what do we say to our political leaders? Well, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not a random event. We agree on that, right? It's not a random event. What happened in 1973 with the recognition of abortion as a woman's right Although under the sovereign hand of God, we must understand it was inspired by Satan. 1973, Roe v. Wade was a satanic attack upon humanity. A humanity created in the image of God. 1973, Roe v. Wade was the work of principalities and powers and dominions. Remember this, Satan is a murderer. Satan is a murderer. But Jesus, the exalted man, is in the business of defeating all his enemies. Roe was one of them. Dominions of darkness are seeking to do harm. The spiritual warfare is real, brothers and sisters, but praise be to God, only Jesus has absolute dominion. Only Jesus has absolute dominion. Don't overlook that fact 
So what is the biblical message that Christians have to those who are in positions of authority, to whom the sword has been given to punish evil and to protect the good? Is there anything we would like to say? Yes. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. And I want us to consider verses 10, 11, and 12. I don't know that I will ever stand before great political leaders. I don't know that they will ever hear anything I have to say, but that's okay. I want to say it anyway, because this is what the Bible has to say to them. In fact, before we read it, I want you to understand that we are, what we're about to read is the Father himself. The Father himself has this to say to all political leaders on behalf of his Son. Here's the Father's message to those in authority. Are you ready? Are you there? Now, therefore, O kings, be what? Be what? Be wise. Be what? What have we been talking about all this time? Be wise. And what is wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom? Oh, so let's keep reading. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Oh, with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, the command from God to those in authority is as follows. Serve the people as someone who is under the comprehensive authority of Jesus, the Son of God. And as you do, restore the fear of the Lord in the nation, beginning with yourselves, kings and rulers. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a demonstration of Christ's sovereignty. Take this as an opportunity to repent where repentance is needed and to restore righteousness in our society. Interestingly, in the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America, we read that it was ordained and established in order to protect certain virtues. Chief among them is justice. There's only one way to sustain and promote justice in any nation, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3.6 Acknowledge him, acknowledge God, and he will make straight your paths. And the way to do that is by confessing Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father loves the Son and has given him absolute dominion and authority over all things. If you come to the Father through faith in Jesus, his Son, you will be welcomed, not only in this life, but forevermore. Third and final, here's a message to the people of God, to us. My brother and sister in the Lord. Don't rob Christ of what is rightfully his, namely, all authority in heaven. And also where else? On earth. What do I mean by that? How do we rob Christ of his rightful authority? In several ways. First, we rob Christ of his rightful authority by dichotomizing our lives as if his authority were confined to the church and my spiritual life while everything else about me is mine and mine alone. Don't believe that. He's Lord even over your thinking. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, neatly sums up the fear of the Lord applied. Here it is. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's the fear of the Lord applied. In all your ways, as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a worker, as a citizen, etc. In all your ways, fear him. In all your ways, acknowledge him as God. Live as one under authority. Second, and in the same train of thought, we rob Christ of his rightful authority by confining his lordship to the four walls of the church as if he had nothing to say to the rest of the world. Jesus is not Lord just of one sphere of life. He is Lord of all. Third, and expanding on the last one, we rob Christ of his rightful authority when we fail to thank him for the progress of righteousness and justice in the world. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a triumph of grace. It's a triumph of grace. It is a victory that we must ascribe to the Lord and we must praise him for it. If you are failing to thank the Lord for that, why is it? That's what I would like to ask. Did you suddenly start to believe that history has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God? We are not deists who think that the Lord is somewhere out there indifferent to our history. Neither are we Greek mythologists who believe in Tike, the goddess of luck. We are biblical Christians who believe that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. So yes, my invitation to you, my brother and sister, Christians, rejoice and thank the Lord for what took place. And pray for the Lord to establish greater and greater justice upon his world. Fourth, and we're almost done, we rub Christ of his rightful authority by being ashamed of his gospel. At the end of the day, we preach Christ. At the end of the day, that is our message to the world. The gospel of Jesus still is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Nothing has changed. Let us not be ashamed of it. And finally, we rob Christ of his rightful authority by fearing anything other than him. Christian, don't fear men. Don't fear the controversy. Don't fear the consequences of living a godly life in this world. Fear God. Leave the consequences to him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your instruction this morning. And if there is Anything that we need today is to learn to fear you, to fear you above all else, to feel, fear you in reverence and awe and wonder for who you are. And we have one single desire, and it is this, to see the name of your Son, the one to whom you have given all things, our desire is to see his name exalted, worshipped, praised, and adored, and believed upon. 
And so, Father, as we continue to live life in a fallen world, give us boldness, courage, love, compassion, patience, mercy. And help us, Lord, never, never to be ashamed of the one who sits at your right hand, the Lord Jesus, in whom salvation is found. I pray that if there is anyone in this room who is walking in confusion or darkness, that you will open their eyes to see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ who died upon the cross to forgive us of our sins, to reconcile us to you, Father, and the one who rose again, defeating forever the grave. And so as your church, we stand before you, Father, in complete dependence upon the work and the power of the Spirit. So strengthen us to be the salt and the light of this world. And these things we pray. In the precious, matchless, and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, amen.